Welcome everyone, this is WeChat, the podcast brought to you by the St. Andrew Society of Mexico. This is a place of reunion and fun for Scottish cultural lovers in Mexico and around the world. We are here to continue the great tradition of this society, founded in 1893. We are your hosts, Tania Fuentes and Alba Sasueta. Welcome. Whiskey is a distilled liquor made from fermented mash of cereal grains, mainly barley mixed with yeast and water. It can be mostly Scotch, Irish and Canadian or American, although lately we have seen the rise of other production countries as Japan. Whiskey is always aged in wooden casks, usually of white oak, which also will contribute to its flavor. The name comes from the Celtic Asqueva or Scots Gaelic Uskevahe, both adaptations of the Latin phrase aqua vitae, meaning water of life. Whiskey has been distilled in Scotland for hundreds of years. There is some evidence to show that the art of distilling could have been brought to the country by Christian missionary monks, but it has never been proved that Highland farmers did not themselves discover how to distill spirit from their surplus barley. The oldest reference to whiskey occurs in the Scottish Shaker Rolls for 1494, where there's an entry of eight balls of malt to make aquavite. Newburgh is known as the birthplace of whiskey. It's very close to the River Tay, north of the city of Edinburgh. That's right. On the other hand, and by law, all Scotch whiskey must be matured for at least three years, but most single malts lie in the cask for eight, 10, 12, 15 years or longer. Unlike wine, whiskey does not mature further once it's in the bottle. While the distinctive single malts produced by individual distilleries are becoming increasingly popular, blending creates over 90% of the Scotch whiskey enjoyed throughout the world. The way Scotch whiskey is made has evolved over several centuries, but the history of Scotch whiskey embraces a much wider heritage, that of Scotland and its people. The malt whiskies are divided into four groups according to the geographical location of the distilleries in which they are made, as follows. Number one, lowland malt whiskies, made south of an imaginary line drawn from Dundee in the east to Greenock in the west. Number two, highland malt whiskies, made north of that line. Number three, Speyside malt whiskies from the valley of the river Spey. Number four, Isla malt whiskies from the island of Isla. Number five, Campbelltown whiskies. Malt whiskies differ considerably in flavor according to the distillery from which they come from. But to tell us more about this traditional and representative Scottish drink, we are talking to Greg King, senior single malt Scotch brand ambassador, Ben Riak, <laughs> Glenn Dornack, and Glenn Glassa. I hope I didn't butcher that. <laughs> Welcome, Greg. My name is Greg King. I'm, I'm the senior brand uh, ambassador for three Scotch distilleries, which would be Ben Riak, Glendronic, and Glen Glassa. Uh, all have been around for a very, very long time, but, but they, they've kind of always been under the radar uh, as far as single malt Scotch uh, whiskey distilleries 
uh, go. Um, and I always say, you know, there's about 130 plus working distilleries in Scotland. And uh, even for the whiskey drinker, even for the connoisseur, you know, they might be able to name five to 10. Um, so there's a lot of distilleries out there that have been around a very long time, have a very rich history, um, but just never made it as big as some of the other brands. And, and it's changing a lot. We're in the middle of a whiskey boom. Um, so you're starting to see brands uh, such as the ones I work with that maybe you wouldn't have seen just a few years ago. Have you yourself heard of Benria, Glendronic, or Glenglassel, Tanya? To be honest, I haven't. <laughs> I don't know. Is that is that too bad? No, 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 not at all, not at all. So that it gives me the opportunity. To... One. <laughs> <laughs> How about yourself? Have you have you uh, heard of those distilleries in the past? No, really. But I know that there are plenty of distilleries in, back in Scotland. So uh, yeah. for me, it's not weird not to to hear about one. Sure, sure. Yeah. So there's the what I refer to as the usual suspects. You know that you can kind of find anywhere and and uh, have a lot of marketing behind them. And don't get me wrong, they're amazing, amazing whiskeys. And there's always a great story of kind of how they they uh, you know became what they what they are. Um, but I always describe our distilleries um, as like that cult band that never went mainstream, but those that know it love it. That's that's what our whiskeys are. Now we are kind of changing that. They are becoming bigger and bigger. And the reason for that is they were purchased, it's been five years now, uh, by a parent company called Brown Foreman. Do you guys know what Brown Foreman owns by chance? No. Please. Have you heard Have you heard of Jack Daniels? Oh, Jack Daniels, yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say that, that sometimes for us on this side of the world, well, we, we get the bigger brands, like the, the, the ones that go international, and it's usually the very common brands for us but but the more specific ones you can only get at certain places you know there's a a, a bar here in mexico city uh, called wallace that specializes in whiskey so they have um the more unknown brands but it's a very specific place you can't find them like in the supermarket for example you, you can only get sure. like the, the bigger brands so it's unless you're like really deep into that world it's really difficult to know the, the, the other brands, right? Sure, sure. And yeah, and, and you'll find that throughout, throughout the world. Um, obviously, you know, depending on where you are, even here in the U.S., you know, what New York has versus Pennsylvania can be very different. Um, but there's still kind of, you know, those, those venues that, that specialize in, in those hard-to-find um, spirits. And, and that's the fun of it. That, that really is the fun of it. Um, You know, if you get a chance, if you're into to whiskeys and spirits of any kind, uh, tracking them down and trying new things and, and having new experiences. So um, I had mentioned the, the parent company, so it would be a Brown Foreman, and they own Jack Daniels. Do, do you have Woodford Reserve? Mm -hmm. the yep, so they own Woodford Reserve, um, and they own a few other things. Heritor Tequila is, is theirs as well, uh, Old Forester. Uh, bourbon, and um, they didn't have any single malts in their in their portfolio. And what had happened was is that all three distilleries that that I handle now were independently owned by one individual. So first of all, it's very uncommon for one person in Scotland to to own a distillery, let alone three distilleries. 
And uh, he had been in the industry for, for uh, you know, 40 plus years. His name is Billy Walker. Uh, and he was, you know, a, a whiskey expert through and through. And he had purchased Ben Riek in 2000 and, uh, oh my gosh, 2004. Uh, ben uh, Glendronic in 2008 and Glen Glassa in 2013. So he had purchased three distilleries over the course of about 10 years. So it wasn't um, a family business or anything. He got into that himself. Well, he had, yes, yeah, so that's a great question. He had made his, uh, all his experience came through years of years of years of, of being a master distiller, master blender, working with other distillers. And I think he just took it upon himself to branch out and purchase his own. And the distillers themselves, I mean, uh, Ben Riek has been around uh, since 1898. Glendronic is 1826. And then Glen Glass is 1875. So the distilleries have a, have a, have a history to them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was able to, to purchase all three. Um, and, and it's very rare for, for distillers to be family owned. There's a few still out in, in Scotland. Um, for the most part, they're going to be part of a bigger parent company. And that's what happened with, with Brown Foreman. But Brown Foreman is family owned as well. So you know, even though Jack Daniels is, is one of the biggest brands in the world, there's still the Brown family is very much a part of, of the uh, of the company. So um, I was hired uh, four and a half years ago, just like the ink was, you know, still wet on, on the paperwork. Um, and uh, I've been, you know, traveling around the northeast part of the, the U.S. Uh, for the better part of four and a half years, talking about the three Scotch distilleries and how to taste and you know flavor profiles and history and and all that um and uh, it's it's been an amazing experience i worked with some older uh, some other brands uh, in the past um some bigger name brands and um yeah it's just it's my passion and what i love to do that's great, great. so you're in charge of like showing the american market what they're <laughs> missing and with this uh with this brand Yeah, so it's very much education focused. So people always ask kind of, you know, what's a typical day or, you know, and it changes every single day. I mean, case in point, I had a couple of meetings this morning on the phone and, and we're setting up events, you know, for later in the month. Um, and then I have to go to some accounts later today. Um, but it's very education focused. It's, it's educating people on the brand, uh, the category, uh, the history of the distilleries, flavor profiles. Um, you know, we have a large portfolio. So between three distilleries, we have an extensive portfolio. Uh, new expressions come in. Some expressions go away. Uh, we just actually did a complete uh, revamp of the Benriac packaging uh, and maturation. So that, starting in October of last year all the way to today, is still very much a, a new conversation to, to be had because we're just talking about you know, the, the new products that, that are now out in the market. So one thing I did want to add is, is, is when the distilleries were purchased um, uh, from Billy Walker, uh, he was the master distiller. He was the one that really, he, he made the whiskey. You know, he, he, was the, he was the conductor of the orchestra. And he had moved on. So we needed a new master distiller, master blender. And we were lucky enough, we have uh, now Rachel Berry, Uh, she's 30 years, almost 30 years in the industry. She's in the Whiskey Hall of Fame. And she's worked with some of the biggest brands, you know, on the planet. Gwen Morangi is one of the brands she used to work with. I know you said <laughs> I that, told that you was that's one. my favorite. Yeah. 
So some of the whiskeys you're probably drinking, she may have made years ago. Um, So yeah, she's a keeper of the Quake, which is one of the highest uh, honors in the industry. So you're starting to see her spin on some of these whiskeys, specifically uh, Ben Riek. I mean, complete maturation change, package change. You know, she was really uh, the, the... the person behind all of that as well as the other distilleries she she oversees all of them but uh but you're starting to see her her fingerprint on on these whiskeys i'm really intrigued by this all all these people you know within the whiskey world so what are what are the 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 ranks you mentioned like master distiller master blender uh so what's like the 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 path that you follow if you want a career in in whiskey what are the the options (laughs) (laughs) or the steps if if you can figure that out, then please let me know because there's a. I think like most like most things, you know, people come from from different um, backgrounds all the time. Um, I will say a lot of master distillers, so the the the, the top of the you know the, the food chain, so to speak, uh, are chemists. So what used to be kind of, um, you know, and I'm generalizing here, but what used to be, you know, kind of a, uh, an apprenticeship uh, where you work for years and years and years and learn a trade, that's still very much there. But for the, for the most part, a lot of the master distillers, the ones that create the whiskey, because there's so much science behind it. There's always that balance between art and science. There's so much science behind it um, that uh, Rachel Berry's a chemist by trade. Billy Walker was a chemist, our old master distiller. Um, Jack Daniels, master distiller, is a chemist. Uh, uh, so it goes on and on and on. Uh, but so kind of the ranks um, you'll have, and um, I'll just kind of generalize for a, a scotch um a scotch distillery, uh, but you can have warehouse men who handle all the casts. You can have stillmen who handle the actual production uh, distillation process. Uh, th- those that work with mashing and fermentation, um, you know, the master distiller. There's also a distillery manager. Uh, so sometimes, you know, master distillers can't be on site. So the distillery manager is, is, is very much, you know, kind of running the day-to-day operation. Um, and then the master distiller themselves really is kind of, you know, the one that makes, you know, the final decision on, on the product. Um, and then as far as kind of like where my role is, you know, I handle a, a region, um, but we also have a global brand ambassador. His name is Stuart Buchanan. He's been in the industry for, for well over 20 years. And um, he actually helped reopen these distilleries with our previous owner. So he was, in the warehouses. He was a stillman. He was a distillery manager. So he has that firsthand knowledge of being in these distilleries for, for years and years and years. And then he loves to talk and he's a great educator. And they said, hey, you, do you want to go out on the road? And then he became the global ambassador. So it, there's, a, there's a lot of different roles. There's a lot of different ways to get in it. Um, you know, a lot of, like, if you're, uh, if you're a Jack Daniels ambassador, for example, you could come from behind the bar, you know, a lot of amazing mixologists, bartenders, they'll become brand ambassadors for, uh, for brands as well. So, you know, I actually started in the cigar industry. Uh, <laughs> so, so that was kind of my segue into spirits because we used to do events with spirits and wine companies quite often. And, uh, I just, you know, grew a passion for it. So there's a, there's a lot of different ways to kind of get to where you're going. 
That sounds like a dream job, right? To go around the world traveling, just talking about whiskey. That sounds amazing. And drinking whiskey. And yeah, you're right. <laughs> that's the most important part. Yeah, drinking whiskey, I think that's, a, that's the main part. And the travel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love the travel. It's a, it's a huge perk of the job. But I will say it's very rare, at least in my role, and I, I would say the global ambassadors as well, that when you travel, you have kind of time to yourself. It's usually land somewhere, or at least in, on the East Coast, there's a lot of trains, uh, you know, to Boston or D.C. or Philadelphia, where you get somewhere, you start working immediately. Someone will pick you up from the train station. You start going to a town. Uh, you'll do an event. You'll do a dinner. And then you do it again the next day. And then you go. So it's great to see these cities. But, you know, sometimes it's just in and out. It's all whiskey focused. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. But uh it's uh, it's usually kind of fast and furious, and and then you, you don't have time to explore. <laughs> it's very rare. I, I was lucky enough. I got to go to Toronto. I always say last year, but last year everything was shut down. So I guess it was two years ago, and I had a day to myself to walk around Toronto, which was just great. I went to the aquarium. I you know it was a bunch of families and then me. <laughs> <laughs> well, a day is better than nothing, right? So yeah. Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I wanted to ask, uh, where are the distilleries in Scotland located? So, yeah. Yeah. So they are, uh, there's 130 plus currently uh, operating uh, and they're located throughout the entire country. Um, you know, there are whiskey making regions of Scotland. Um, so you have the highlands in the north and the lowlands in the south, and then you have the island chain, uh, and then and the most famous island as well. And yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I read about it a little bit, but I really don't know what the difference is between the whiskeys produced in some specific regions and others. So. Yeah, well, and it's a great question, and it's it's, it's changing somewhat. Uh, that's what's so fascinating about about. Uh, the whiskey industry, and again, specifically single malt or scotch, uh, because it changes quite often. You know, every, every 10, 15, 20 years, there's a little bit of a shift. Um, um, but yeah, so, you know, there's, there's different regions. Uh, the most famous uh, island chain, is uh, there's an island called Isla. It's, it's spelled Islay, I-S-L-A-Y, but it's pronounced Isla. Um, and then you have Speyside, which I always refer to as Napa Valley wine, right? So there's, there's wine made throughout California, but Napa is really kind of, that's the place, right? And it's terroir and, and, and climate and all these things. And that's kind of what Speyside is to Scotland. So if you look at a map of Scotland, in the northeast corner is a little territory called Speyside. And to answer uh, your question, about 60% of all the distilleries are in this little spot in the northeast corner. And the reason for that is because of climate, you know, water source. It was, if we go back to the smuggling days before whiskey making was, was legal, uh, that was a good place to hide because you're in this kind of deep valley and there's mountains that kind of cover you and, and, and you can kind of produce whiskey uh, illegally. So wow, they are looking at that. Yeah. Yeah. So what ended up happening is a lot of places where they were producing illegally, that's just where the distillery was founded. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so the joke is, it's like, if you look at um, uh, Glendronic, which was founded in 1826, that's when they had to 
prove that they were making whiskey. They were probably making whiskey in that spot prior to 1826. It's when they kind of got caught and had to fill out the right paperwork because <laughs> there was a there was an excise tax that actually went through in 1823. So it changed the whole uh, production process. Prior to 1823, there were legal distilleries, um, but there weren't as many after this tax went into effect that made it easier. Um, and uh, a lot of distilleries started to open up, really creating the industry as we know it today, starting in the 1820s moving forward. So you'll start to see, if you look at the history of, of whiskey production, there's these boom periods the uh, 1820s would be one, uh, 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s is another one. And then it dips because there's prohibition in the U.S. in World War One, World War Two, So it dips. And then after World War Two, it goes up again. And then there was a huge vodka craze in the 80s and 90s. So it drops again. And now we're in a whiskey boom. So it goes up again. So it's really kind of an interesting timeline if you, if you look at it through a historical lens. And in which region your distilleries are? So we're in Speyside uh, for Ben Riek. All right. And then um, our other two are just about, they're only about 30 minutes apart. They're all in the northeast part of Scotland. Um, they form this little triangle, but two are in the Highlands and one would be in Speyside. And <clears throat> I mentioned that it's, things have changed a little bit. So traditionally where the distillery was, if you were in a certain region, um, it was thought that you would produce a certain style or certain flavor profile. So the whiskeys that come out of Speyside tend to be soft and approachable and very fruit forward, which Ben Riek is. Uh, the Highlands is a big region. So there's all kinds of different styles. Um, there's big, robust, um, dark fruit whiskeys, which would be our Glendronic whiskey. Uh, but then you also have Glenmorangie, which is a, a softer, fruitier flavor profile. Uh, which is a Highland distillery. Um, and then the Lowlands are very soft whiskeys. And this, again, is, is just generalizing. And then the Island chains, that's where the smoke really starts to come out. So if you've had whiskeys from Isla, there are nine distilleries on this little island of about 3,000 people, and there's nine distilleries. Um, those are where those big smoky whiskeys tend to come from. Uh, you know, but it doesn't have to be the case. And, and the reason that they typically come from the island chains. These big smoky whiskeys typically come from the island chain. Again, if you go through the history of production, if you went back 150, 200 years ago, all scotch would have been smoky. And the reason for that is when you make it, you have this process um, where you take the barley, because single malt scotch is made from three ingredients, yeast, barley, and water. That is it. And when you take the barley out of the field, it's a very, very tight cereal grain. So to get the sugar out of it, you have to soak it in water for several days. And after you soak it in water, it begins to open up a little bit and you lay it out on a floor and it has to dry. And you would dry it by lighting a fire underneath it. So the smoke goes up and it permeates the, the barley itself. And it's, it, it, it eventually you'll have to dry it out completely, grind it up and take it through the whole production process. But that smoke that's been infused never goes away. So when you create a whiskey using what's called the peating process, peat is the soil that's burnt underneath it and the smoke goes up, um, you'll get a smoky peaty whiskey. Technology of the day was to use peat. If you're in Scotland, which I believe, I believe Tanya, you, 
Did you ever see any peat uh, like just used as a fuel source? Not that I remember, to be honest. Yeah. So, so the reason I ask is if, if you happen to be at Glendronic Distillery, even by a little fireplace in, in what's called Glen House, it's the house where you stay. It's the old uh, owner's house. It's from 1771. Um, and by the fireplace, instead of like old newspaper, they have little chunks of peat to start a fire. So it's a fuel source. It's a heat source. You can cook with it. You can build fires with it. Um, if you didn't use that, uh, you would use coal or coke. But that didn't come into play until the mid-1800s. So all these distilleries started to realize that if they use coal, their whiskey will not have a smoky flavor profile. And then technology started to change a little bit more, and that would be the train law. So now you can take trains to all these distilleries, and you can deliver coal to all these distilleries. So they stopped using peat because that was the natural fuel source that was around them you literally could just walk out the back door i'm generalizing and dig it up and then use it um so yeah so the the technology changed they didn't have to use peat anymore they could use uh, coal um and uh it doesn't produce any smoky influence it doesn't it doesn't make your whiskey peaty um but i always say where can't a train get to and that would be islands on the west coast of scotland so they had to continue using the old style methods. Now it's up to the distillery. It's completely up to the distillery what style of whiskey they want to do. Technology has changed. People's palates have changed. So there are whiskeys coming from those island chains and islands that aren't smoky. They don't have to be, but that's what they're known to, to produce. So you'll kind of get a combination of both styles. And then a perfect example is, is our Benriac distillery, which, again, is a space-side, fruity, floral, very soft, approachable. Uh, we do peated whiskeys there as well. So it's been part of our production for a very long time. Um, and we're using a different peat source. It's, it's from the mainland. Um, so it creates this beautiful campfire wood smoke note. Um, if your peat is coming from an island, you're going to get sea influence. So if you have those whiskeys from the island chains, you can kind of think salty, seaweedy, um, you know, there's a, there's a different flavor profile to it. Uh, so, so yeah, so depending on where the whiskey is being made, depending on who the master distiller is, depending on the distillery style really kind of affects the flavor profile. Um, but because technology has changed so much over the last few years, you know, they can kind of do anything, anything they want. So it's it's the master distiller's job to decide on the on the profile, right? Yeah, I'm yeah yeah. Uh, that the simple answer, yes, I'm sure there's a team, um, but the, the master distiller really uh, has, and it, again, simplifying uh, two jobs. That is to continue what has been made been made before them. So if you have a whiskey, like uh, a, a Glendronic 12 of ours, if you taste it today, hopefully it'll taste the same in five years uh, and in 10 years. So they need to continue that um, production. But then they also put their spin on things. So you'll start to see kind of new releases and limited releases and kind of one-offs where they're putting their their spin on, on the production. So... Um, Yeah, I'm sure there's a team of people that kind of sit down and, and think which direction we want to go, but it'll be the master distiller that that gets gets the flavor profile that they're looking for. Okay, so they have like their main one that has to be traditional and kept the same, and they can invent something new you know, for a limited edition bottle. Or yeah, 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 absolutely. 
Absolutely. Very interesting. Yeah. And can you talk about the years? I mean, if it's better at uh, uh, 15 years and at 12 years and so on. Do you think it is? I think it, uh, no. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I prefer the 12 years. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe it depends on the we uh, on really on the on the blend and the broad and blah blah. Yeah, no, you're you're 100 right. You're 100 right. Um, so yeah, so when you look at a bottle of whiskey and it has a year on it, uh, most commonly you'll see 10 years, 12 years, 15, 18, 21. Uh, that is the youngest whiskey in that bottle. So if you're buying a 10-year whiskey, that whiskey took 10 years to make, 10 years to mature. Um, but what happens is, is that if you have a 10 and a 12 and a 15, uh, most likely it's not just a few, three years older or two years older. Most likely they've changed the maturation style for each. And the reason is, is they want to make sure each one kind of has its own personality. So depending on one's palate, um, you know, the, the taste profile that they like, uh, the trick really is to find, you know, the expression that works for you. And that could be based off of, you know, just what you like to eat, time of day, all of these things factor into it. But just because it's older doesn't make it better or worse. It just makes it different. So it's going to have a different flavor profile to it. Um, now, as whiskey gets older, it gets more expensive. So people start to equate more money being spent. That means it has to be better. But what the reality is, is taste is subjective. So if it's not to your liking, flavor-wise, you might like a 12-year over an 18. And the perfect example is a Glendronic distillery of ours. Uh, we have our 12-year expression, which is matured in two different types of casks. So 70% of all the flavor well, upwards of 70% of all the flavor you get in a whiskey will come from the type of casks that you mature the whiskey in. Now, 90% of the industry will use uh, ex-bourbon casks because there's so many ex-bourbon casks. And the reason for that is that the bourbon industry can only use that cask one time. That's it. So they'll sell it to Scotland and Ireland, Japan and, and uh, the Caribbean, uh, you know, all over the world. And people will use these casks to mature their spirit. The other 10% will be some sort of wine cask, most likely a fortified wine cask. And the case of Glendronic, we'll use Oloroso sherry and Pedro Jimenez sherry. And these casks are empty, but they used to hold Oloroso and Pedro Jimenez sherry. So we'll put, for our 12-year expression, whiskey into both of those casks. And after 12 years, we marry them together. So it'll create raisins and brown sugars and spice and nutmeg and ginger. And it's a very sweet, approachable flavor profile. Our 18-year Glendronic is matured 100% in Oloroso cask. So it's big and robust and dark fruits and dark chocolate. And if you're not used to that flavor profile or you don't like that flavor profile, you're not going to like the 18-year. It might be older and you might not get a chance to try it again. So try it, go for it. Um, but just again, taste is subjective. So if you looked at uh, something like that, then you can kind of compare and contrast. But what should happen with, with most distilleries is that the flavor profiles are going to change. Um, and of course, the older it is, the more expensive it is. And that's just because it takes longer to make. 
Uh, there's taxes, there's less of it. So whiskey will evaporate in the cask about 2% roughly every year. So the difference between how much comes out of the cask when it's 12 years old versus 18 years old is much different. So there's less of it. So there's all these factors that actually apply to, to why the cost will go up as well. So there's all these little kind of subtle nuances, but it just, long story short, <laughs> the different ages mean it's just going to taste different. Great, but in, thank you for mentioning the price bit. I think that's interesting to talk about because as you say, maybe it's not always, you know, a more expensive whiskey is uh, synonymous of a better one, right? So how do I know what to choose? Let, let's say that I don't know anything. Well, that's actually the case. I, I only know the ones I like and I have like certain brands that I know that I like. But, you know, it, it actually happened when I went to, uh, <clears throat> to St. Louis with, with Jamie that, you know, we were sitting there at the bar and the, they bring the menu and I'm like just looking for the ones that I know. But how can I choose? What, what should I be looking for when I want to buy a whiskey? Uh, you know, based on the on the profile. So, yeah, if I'm in a budget and also, you know, in restaurants and also if I want to make someone a gift, let's say, how, how do I choose one in a, if I'm not familiar with the brand? Sure. And that's a great question. And that's actually a huge part of why I love what I do is because I get to introduce people to these brands that they may not have heard of. And to your point, if you sat there, if you're at a restaurant in St. Louis and you see the prices, do you want to take a $25 gamble on a whiskey exactly. for one pour? Exactly. That's It, the point that you're like, okay, I'm going to invest in this. So I better, you know, commit to a good choice here. Sure. So, yeah. Like, yeah. And then you're all confused and like, okay, so do I go with the safe choice, which is the brands that I already know, or take the mm -hmm. risk, you know, with... Yes. Yes. So, uh, yeah, that's the fun game to play. <laughs> um, but what I will say, and that is a great question because everybody goes through that. I go through that all the time, you know, not necessarily with, with, with scotches, but I could do that with American whiskeys, wine. Um, the, the beautiful thing is, is that if I'm doing my job correctly, the person that, uh, whether it's a, a, a bartender or the wait staff, if, If I've done my job correctly, if there's a big whiskey list, they should be able to kind of point you in the right direction. And you actually are a step ahead of the, the rest, I would say, most people, because you already know you like this brand. Uh, or you, you might have one or two brands that you know you like. And if you can give that suggestion to the, the wait staff, then they should be able to point you in the right direction. Or if you even just said, I like fruit forward whiskeys or I like, but it, you could also get very, very specific. And it depends on the knowledge of, of the person working, um, but they're becoming more and more knowledgeable. I mean, years ago, it may have been a little different, but the, the level of knowledge that those that work in retail shops or bars and restaurants is through the roof. I mean, they want to learn all the time and it's a big part of our job to go to talk to them about our brand. So they're always interacting with uh, different brands. But if you say, I like a fruit forward whiskey, if you said, I like apples and pears and peaches, then you, we would offer you Ben Rhea. If you say, I like dark fruits and raisins and, and chocolate, then we would offer Glendronic. So there's different fruit styles. There's different, do you like something smoky? Do you not like something smoky? There's all these things that 
again, it all goes back to, to uh, taste profile and, and what you prefer. And hopefully they'll be able to point you in the right direction. If they're not, my suggestion is, is stick with what you like. Play it safe. I will say it's, it's very difficult to find a bad quality whiskey at this point. The, the competition is way too high. Almost every whiskey you'll try will be a top quality. It's probably the best it's ever been. But will the flavor profile meet what you're looking for? Um, and that'll, all, that'll also apply to, to a retailer. So if you go in and, again, you see a huge shelf of 100 bottles and you can't pronounce half the name, uh, <laughs> you know, but you can start to kind of talk to, to, the, to the retailer and they should know. Most people have a spirits buyer where they, they don't focus on anything but the spirits. And typically they, they lean towards whiskey. So if you are trying to buy a gift and you have a price range, the best place to start. And then once you go from there, you're like, does this person drink a lot of whiskey? Yes, no. Uh, do they like smoky whiskeys? Do they like fruit forward? Like, so you can kind of get an idea of, of what you would like to do. Now, there, the old classics, you can never go wrong with. No one will ever be upset that you <laughs> bought them a, a classic uh, whiskey. Um, but it's also fun to experiment as well, if you if you kind of know a little bit of what they like, if you said, "Oh, this person likes Ben Rick, um, for example, then they can kind of point you into a direction of, of that style as well. So, uh, yeah, really kind of rely on on you know the the restaurant uh, or the retailer, and if if they're not giving you the answers you want, then just go with the the standard. <laughs> Great, <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks so much for the advice because I I think that's you know, the choices that most people struggle the most with, right? What do I did do? You, I, have, I have to ask, did you order a whiskey in St. Louis? Yes, but but honestly, I, I, I can say that I regret my choice because I went with the safe choice, but I had Jamie uh, there with me, so I could have asked for a recommendation, but I didn't want to, you know, seem like I didn't know what I was going for i i don't know i'm i'm weird no. maybe and no I, no no i didn't even ask the waiter either i was just like okay so here's the list i know that i want this one okay so what do you want up this one so i went with the safe one and of course i enjoyed it but maybe i should have taken a, a risk there or yeah. you know have what they were having or you know just to try right something. right right yeah yeah there's it, it, a lot of different directions i mean it's again it, it, and the reason is you know you want to be happy with the purchase. You know, that's what we, we really want you to be happy with what you're drinking. Um, one of the things that I love doing is when I'm doing a tasting and somebody tells me what they like, uh, all right, have you tried, again, you know, you like this, have you tried Glendronic? Or you like this, have you tried Benria? Um, and you can see, uh, like, sometimes, you know, their, their eyes light up, like, oh my gosh, I didn't know you know, that this distillery was around. Thank you for introducing me to it. Um, so that's really kind of a big part of, of the day to day. Uh, but, you know, again, you know, if you're going to spend $25, $30 on a pour, uh, you know, you really want to make sure you're getting your money's worth. I will say this, and this comes up, you know, when I'm talking with my, my colleagues, and we all kind of agree. Uh, you know, we get to try all these amazing whiskeys all the time, different, you know, different brands, you know, our own portfolio is quite huge and we do have new releases quite often, but we always tend to go back to the same thing. So my favorite out of our portfolios is our Glendronic 18. 
And that's the one I probably drink, you know, or go back to the most. So we always kind of, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And we like, we like, you know, there's always the core expression that we like. Great. And another question that, that, that I have, you know, you mentioned, you know, bourbon and Japanese whiskeys. Uh, mm -hmm. So is there a thing like there is with tequila that you can only call tequila if it's produced in, in that region or champagne if it's produced in France? Is there like this denomination uh, of origin for whiskey or can anyone, you know, in Japan, in Russia and wherever produce a whiskey and call it whiskey? Uh, so to answer the last part of that question, yes, there are whiskeys being produced all over the world. Um, uh, but they're, depending on where it's being made, there's probably going to be a set of rules and regulations um, that you have to follow to be a certain style. But whiskey is actually the category. So whiskey would be the umbrella term, uh, the same way wine is the umbrella term or beer is the umbrella term. Whiskey is the umbrella term. And underneath it, you can have scotch whiskey. And then you, underneath that, you could have blended scotch whiskey. You could have single malt scotch whiskey. Um, but then you have American whiskeys, bourbon whiskeys. You have Irish whiskeys. You have Japanese whiskeys, Canadian whiskeys. Um, you know, I, I forget how many countries are now producing their own whiskey. But, you know, whiskey is that umbrella term, the blanket term. Now, for scotch whiskey, there is the Scotch Whiskey Association, who actually put the rules and standards into place. So you have, for Scotch whiskey, it has to be made in Scotland. That's the simple answer. Um, un underneath that, it has to be aged uh, and bottled in Scotland as well, but it has to be aged for at least three years in oak. So there's these rules and regulations that um, each body will put into place. Like bourbon is another perfect example. So bourbon has to be made in the U.S. You know, most people think it has to be made in Kentucky, but here in New York, I think we have five or six bourbon distilleries in Brooklyn. Um, but it has to follow some guidelines. And that would be, it has to be made in the U.S., made from at least 51% corn as its recipe. Corn has to be at least 51%. Um, it has to be uh, matured in new oak. And then there's other things that go into it as far as alcohol percentage, uh, et cetera. But depending on which style you're producing, um, And where you are, there are going to be guidelines and legalities to it. So, for example, to try to simplify that, um, I could make single malt whiskey here in New York, but it would be single malt American whiskey. It's not scotch because it's not made in Scotland. It's not matured in Scotland. So there are a couple of single malt distilleries in the U.S. that do really, really well, um, but they're single malt American whiskeys. They're using the exact same style, three ingredients probably same production methods, but because it's not made in Scotland, it's American single malt. It can't be called scotch. Nope. nope. And Japanese whiskey, it gets a, it, they don't make it easy on us. Japanese whiskey mm -hmm. actually just passed the law because Japanese whiskey has exploded over the last 10 or 15 years. And it's amazing. It's on like an international uh, contest or something, right? Yes. So it, the foundation of Japanese whiskey is based off of the Scottish um, technique. And uh, for about 100 years, I think it was the 19, early 1920s, Jap uh, Japan has been producing uh, whiskey styles similar to uh, Scotland. Um, and I believe it was in 2012, they won Best Whiskey of the Year. So they were on their way to being, you know, uh, 
they were on their way to to growing the industry. And when they won that award, again, I'm simplifying, that made their Japanese whiskey industry explode. So everybody wanted to try it. It's gotten incredible reviews. People love it. Supply and demand isn't there, which is very interesting because people really, really want it, but there's not that much of it. So that causes the price to fluctuate as well. And the desire for things that you can't have goes up. Um, but what they just passed a law, um, I want to say a couple of months ago, that the whiskey has to be made in Japan because they were actually able, because of their rules and regulations, to bring in whiskey from Scotland that was distilled in Scotland, but they were maturing it in Japan and then bottling it as a Japanese whiskey. So there's all these kind of weird kind of nuances depending on what style you're producing. Um, but those rules you know, do change from time to time. Actually, what just passed for, for Scotch whiskey, which was never the case, they just did this, I think, a year, maybe a year and a half ago, is that we can now mature in uh, tequila and mezcal barrels. Couldn't do that before. So a used tequila barrel, uh, which we have plenty of because, you know, brown forming on territory tequila, um, you know, and it's going to it's going to create a different flavor profile for sure. When when you mature it in, a, in an old tequila cast versus an old bourbon cast or an old cherry cast. So it'll you'll you'll start to see some new whiskeys out there flavor wise. Anyway. And about these competitions, uh, what do the judges look for? What makes a whiskey the best one in the world? Is there a specific <laughs> criteria that to follow or how do they decide uh so we've been lucky enough where like our glendronic 15 uh won best in show recently our glendronic 21 has won best in show at, at many events um essentially what they're looking for is quality um the, the the panel of judges it's a lot of competition um but the the judges uh for the most part are, are, are very very qualified people uh, a lot of them are in the industry and have been for a very, very long time. Uh, but they're actually looking at the same thing as, as the consumer. They're looking at the color of the whiskey. They're looking at the nose. So when you, the same way if you went to a wine tasting, if you're, if you're nosing a wine or a whiskey, the flavors that you get from it. And of course, on the palate, what flavors you get on your, on your palate. And then the finish. And they're looking for complexity. They're looking for balance. They're looking for things that stand out. Um, and, they're, and they're looking for any type of flaw. So there can be flaws in whiskeys, and that could be, you know, something that tastes musty or cheesy or soapy, like these little things that ha might happen throughout the distillation process um, that stand out to, to the trained palate. So they're looking for the highest quality uh, spirit um, and something that stands out. And, and, and in a lot of cases, when you look at, you know, the best whiskey of the year, um, that's, that's what stood out at, at that particular time. So... You know, it, it does change. You know, it's not like the same whiskey wins every single year. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, the very, very, uh, that's a great question because, you know, there's, there's a lot of whiskeys out there. And it's actually, you know, if you're looking for something new as well, there, I don't talk about uh, competitions too often. Um, although uh, our recent release of Ben Riek, um, our Ben Riek 12 year smoky. So it's a smoky 12 year. Uh, was the number three whiskey of the year, which to us is great because we just launched it in October and it was the number three whiskey yeah, of the year. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. So I'll talk about it a little bit, but it does give you some direction uh, when you're when you're new to the category. If you're looking for for things to try, to so look at some of those lists 
Um, the San Francisco Spirits Competition, Whiskey Advocate Magazine does their top 20, 25 whiskeys of the year. Um, it, it'll give you a direction and it'll give you flavor notes and profiles on, on kind of, you know, hopefully something that you like. Great. And we, we talked about like uh, countries that are producers of whiskey, but what about consumers? Which countries would you say are the top <clears throat> whiskey drinkers besides Scotland? <laughs> so the U.S., the U.S. is up there. Uh, they might be the, one of the biggest, but again, the you know, population has a lot to do with that. Uh, Taiwan is one of the biggest oh. markets for our expression. Uh, you know, so even though you know, I had asked at the beginning of the call, if you've heard of Ben Rieck or Glendronic or Glenglassa, um, and even in the U.S., you know, most people, you know, hopefully it's changing you know, if I'm doing my job. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, in Taiwan, that was our biggest market for a very, very long time. Um, you know, France, huge Scotch uh, drinkers. Um, uh, Canada, of course. Um, Germany is a, is a big uh, whiskey drinking uh, country as well. So, uh, yeah, you know they're everywhere <laughs> <laughs> that's great no because uh, as you mentioned before you know the the whiskey boom i think that's happening in mexico as well like i remember when i was younger none of my friends used to uh drink whiskey well I, that has to do with age as well right as, a, as teenagers you don't drink whiskey at all but besides that I, i've noticed that a lot of people are gaining interest in, in whiskey and it's becoming more popular than it was uh before so yeah that's i don't know how these trends work but but yeah that's something that that caught my eye that it's becoming more and more popular lately here yeah yeah if, if you can figure out why that happened you would make a lot of money because everybody's always trying to guess and the, they think the reason is Yeah, you know, this is kind of the, the experts when they try to figure out why this is the case. Um, is because the boom before whiskey was vodka. Uh, so you saw all these flavored vodkas. And essentially with vodka, you know, we, you can make it today and sell it tomorrow. Um, and that's what people drank for, for a, a good amount of years. Um, but as things change and as the younger generation gets older, they One of the theories is that people don't want to drink what their parents drank. They want to drink something different. There's a little bit of a rebellious kind of character to it. Um, but whiskey has always kind of gone up and down. And, and I'm quite biased, of course. But, you know, there's a, there's a history to whiskey. You know, we kind of touched on, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, it, there's, there's a lot of reasons why what's in your glass is in your glass. You know, whether it's, you know, uh, location or taxation or politics or wars, uh, all of these things have affected the whiskey industry um, that has been you know, thriving for hundreds of years. Uh, it does have its ups and downs, but it's been, it's been you know, continuous for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, but the big trend now, at least you know, we've been seeing in the last couple of years, is, is gin. So Europe had a big gin craze. Um, you know, the U.S. Is, is, is having its moment with gin. Um, and there's a lot of flavors to gin, of course, with the botanicals. But uh, yeah, everybody's always trying to kind of guess what the next one is going to be. Is it going to be uh, rum? Is it going to be the tequila? You know, no one really is quite sure. You know, beer is going through. Beer is going through a boom period like we've never seen. Well, we haven't seen in a long time, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Especially with craft beer and all that, right? 
Yeah, I think yeah. I think with Jean is more like uh, there's this boom in mixology. I think it's more about that, and most of of the <clears throat> of the mixes or the cocktails that you they they will prepare will be with vodka or gin or mm-hmm. maybe I don't know vermouth or something like that. You know, like different spirits than uh, whiskey. I don't know. I I just know like maybe one or two with whiskey. Ah, the, yeah, the no, you're passion, right? Is that? With yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I got it right. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, that's a very interesting question, Alma. <laughs> and what and what about, um, I mean, the thing about uh, the blended and the single malt? Because uh, most of us will feel posher if we ask for a single malt. But I don't know if, I mean, I, I don't know if it's true because, for example, there's a lot of uh, really... How can I say, like with all um, age, age uh, blended ones that are really, really good, I know. But uh, yeah, most of us will feel posher or refined or really well, into the industry, like just drinking single malt. So I, I wanted to know uh, what about that. Yeah, yeah no, sorry. And also, now that you're going to get into it and talking about mixology, that was very interesting, Alba. Thank you. <laughs> Is it like, okay to mix is there like a, a type of whiskey that is better for mixing or is it meant to be drank like straight and because sometimes you know that people <laughs> that are like this like oh i'm a connoisseur they're like how dare you mix this amazing <laughs> uh spirit with coke <laughs> and it right. feels like, right. like the worst sin in the world to, to mix it with something so how can we <laughs> what do you have sure. to about that so, so, so the, the answer to that, we want you to enjoy it any way that you find enjoyment out of it. So if you have uh, a very old or expensive whiskey, for example, and you want to mix it with Coke, if that's what makes you happy, and that's the best way you're going to enjoy it, then you go right ahead. That really is you know, the, the, the bottom line. The, 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 we want you to drink it any way. Um, that that you'll really really enjoy it. Now there there to to answer that to go a little bit deeper. There's there's two styles of of, uh, of drinking whiskey. Real. So there's for appreciation. Like if you went to a, a a whiskey class, a master class, for example, and you have a flight in front of you, you want to always, in my opinion, try something that you haven't had before. Neat, just to see what the idea is. And if you're at a master class, if you're if you're getting educated on it. You're really trying to break down the, the subtle nuances and flavors, and you're going to learn a little something. So you try everything neat, maybe a little water, maybe an ice cube. Um, but if you're drinking for enjoyment, if you're just drinking, you know, with you know, friends or you're going out, then absolutely, you know, drink it anyway, you know, that 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 works for you. Because if if you don't like, you know, a certain flavor profile, but a, 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 an amazing mixologist can create some cocktail with it. Then, then you're going to get a lot of enjoyment out of that versus you tried it by itself and you don't like it, you never try it again. So there are um, a lot of cocktails that have uh, whiskey as its base. A lot of bourbons tend and rye, uh, American whiskeys tend to focus on old fashions and Manhattan. Um, scotch whiskey, you'll see blended uh, scotches used in, in uh, cocktails. Uh, you'll see single malt used in cocktails as well. Not as common, and, and the, there's there's a couple reasons for that. One is if you're 
going to wait 10, 12, 15 years for a product to make it to the shelf. Do you want to hide that flavor profile? Because you're going for something very specific in a cocktail. Now, we have some wonderful cocktails, like Glendronic 12, for example. So it took 12 years to produce. Um, works very, very well in a Rob Roy. It works really, really well in a highball with some club soda, and a slice of orange. Um, but the other thing of why you don't see too many single malt uh, cocktails is the price. Because when you wait 10, 12, 15 years to produce a whiskey, it's going to have a higher price tag than something that took only a couple of years to produce or, you know, in, in the case of some spirits, a few weeks or a few months. So the price goes up, which throws everything out of whack. I mean, if, if you want to you know, spend $30 on a cocktail, then, you know, you might get a, a single malt scotch cocktail. Um, but um, that's the reason. So, again, there's no right or wrong way to drink it. It's however you get enjoyment out of it. Um, you know, if it's Coke, if it's, you know, with, in an old-fashioned or Rob Roy or Manhattan, what have you, whatever works for you. But the difference between um, you know blends and and single malts is that right now single malts are to to your point like that's that's the drink of choice that's a sophisticated choice that's relatively new blends really are the foundation of the industry um, now if we went back to the 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 origins of the industry, when we're talking about the, the smugglers and, and the early, early whiskeys, it would have been a single malt scotch. But the industry really uh, sprang forward based on blends like Dewar's and Johnny Walker and Chivas. Um, if it wasn't for those brands, there really wouldn't be uh, the single malt kind of explosion that we've seen over the last 10, 15 years. Now, the difference is, is that a single malt is only made from three ingredients, yeast, barley, and water. Whereas, uh, and I'm sorry, it's made from three ingredients, yeast, barley, and water, and it's made at one distillery. That's where the single comes in. The fact that it's using one grain, barley, single, and it's a single distillery. So everything takes place at one place. A blend is whiskey coming from multiple distilleries, made from multiple grains, and blended together. So you're going to get a different flavor profile. Think of it as a single malt is a solo act. It's a solo performance. A blend is the whole orchestra. And you have some amazing, amazing blends out there. There's a lot of older age statement blends. Um, there's some that I would put right next to, you know, the best single malt. And blends make up 90% of all the production. 10% will be for, for single malt. So single malts are still very, very new as far as popularity. Um, and it's a very small part of the production. If, if you talk to your parents or grandparents, if they were whiskey drinkers, they were drinking blends. That's what they were drinking because that's what was available. It wasn't until the 1960s that um, we started to see some experimentation of, of pushing blends forward and marketing blend, I'm sorry, marketing single malt as a different option. So in the 60s and 70s, you start to see it for the very first time that, hey, there's a single malt, it's not a blend. And then the 80s, 90s, and then the early 2000s, you see uh, an explosion. The first single malt at Benriot, which was founded in 1898, our first single malt was in 1994. 
That was the first time it was its own bottle with its own Benriac label on it. Now, not to confuse you, Benriac was producing single malt scotch, but it was being sold into blend. So it was a never standalone brand. So um, it could, that, that, that could be a little confusing, but all these distilleries that have been around since the 1800s, throughout the 1900s, they were making, um, if they're a single malt distillery, single malt scotch, but they weren't necessarily having their own brand out there. It was being sold to the big blenders, like the Doors and the Johnny Walkers and the Chivas. That's where it was going. And then they started to realize that there's a market for the single malt itself. Okay, so it's not that one is better than the other. It's just like the complexity and it's a different process and you can find great ones in either format. That's very interesting. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So now you're starting to see things that are known as uh, single cast, which I have over here. This is a Glendronic single cast. So this is really becoming popular. So it's actually one cast. So if you picture a barrel, cast is the generic term for a barrel because Barrel is actually a size, um, but uh, where you dump out a barrel and let's say there's 200 bottles, then you bottle that and send it out. So it's a limited release because even though it's a single malt, if you want to make more than 200 bottles, you have to bring more than one barrel together. So um, there's all kinds of you know, different twists on, on, on whiskey uh, currently. Wow, I, I feel enlightened, really. <laughs> There's so many things that I didn't know. You know and I really in, enjoy whiskey. I like it. And I try to go to these events, you know, usually for uh, World Whiskey Day. You know, this place that I was telling you about, they organize, you know, like uh, this like fair with all the brand ambassadors and, and mixologists. And it's a, a very nice experience. So I try to go to educate myself. But there, is, there were still so many things that I didn't know. And, and now I feel like, I know a bit more. So thank you so much for, for sharing all your knowledge with us. This, this was uh, brilliant. Right, Alba? Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Those, those, those whiskey, you know, whiskey festivals, fairs, those are a great place to, to get a chance to try things that you haven't gotten a chance to try before. I will say there's a, there, you got to pace yourself at those. You got to pace yourself because if you go to one or two tables and you try three or four different things, you You could be ready to go home in about 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And, and also after that, it's difficult to remember which one was the one that you liked most, right? Because you started getting all the flavors yeah. confused yeah. in your mind. So you have to yeah. be like very, very careful. But, but it's nice to attend the, the talks, uh, you know, of the ambassadors. And it's, uh, it's very educational as well. But yeah, you have to be careful, definitely. In all of those <laughs> events, like there's one uh, for craft beer as well that... I sure. I really like to go into. Well, last year it was canceled, of course, but it's so dangerous. Like you go there and you only try like a little bit, like a tiny taste, and by the end of the day, it's like, oh wow. <laughs> so yeah, 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 yeah. You got to know where you want to go. Usually, the they'll give you like a little booklet. Who's there? This is kind of what I want to try. Take a picture of the bottles of the one you like, and. and Yeah, yeah, I've, 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 I've lost count how many, how many whiskey festivals I've done where I'm on the side pouring and you, you see what I refer to as, as the shift, you know, not to kind of get in the weeds on, on uh, you know, whiskey festivals, but everybody comes in really excited and, you know, about an hour in, hour and a half, there's a shift where 
people kind of, you know, haven't paced themselves. But it's a great way to, and that's why we do it. That's why we do those festivals. It's a great way to introduce the brands to to as many people as we can and, and, and talk and educate and let you sample whatever you want. Great. And also, I was thinking about something. For for wine and for beer, I have an app that allows you to register the ones that you've had. And, you know, they show you like the, the, the flavor uh, profile and that kind of thing. Is there a similar thing for whiskey when you, where you can like find a, um, references or register the ones huh. you like or, yeah? Probably, probably. I, I don't use one per se, um, but I would have to guess that there, there's something uh, like that as an app. Um, Whiskey Advocates website has a great database uh, on it. Uh, granted, it's not the ones you've tried, but you could most likely find the ones that you've tried and kind of get you know their feedback on it as well. But I, I, I don't use one, um, but I still just jot down, you know, or take a picture of things that I haven't tried before and that I really like. But if there's not a, an existing app already, then we have a business idea there. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And, and what about food? Like um, which kind of food we, we can try with whiskey or if it's just for just sipping alone or uh, I don't know, maybe I, I will try in a bar whiskey with chips, but I don't know if that's the best thing to do. Right. So uh, what what do you know about that? Well, the whiskey and chips sounds delicious. Uh, we actually, do you have the goldfish crackers? You ever have the goldfish crackers? Um, our Glendronic 12 and goldfish crackers go incredibly well together, which we learned because we were killing time at a bar, just snacking. Um, so absolutely, you can pair, uh, you know, seafood with whiskey. You can, you know, steaks with whiskey. Uh, almost all types of pasta. We've done pasta pairing. Um, but the easiest route is uh, cheese, whiskey and cheese, and whiskey and chocolate go really, really, really well together. And we have some uh, you know, programs that we do internally where we have pairings um, that we'll work with, um, but it's really, you wanna, you wanna try to get the flavor profiles connected. You want them to, to complement each other, or sometimes you want them to be uh, in contrast with one another. So you want something kind of big and smoky and then something kind of light and sweet. Um, and that can work too. But it's really, you know, we've gone through a lot of trial and error to find what works. But, you know, if you like, for example, um, like a big blue cheese and you have our Glendronic 18, which is a big, robust, uh, powerful uh, scotch, um, it's just unbelievably works so well together and you'll know it too. I mean, I'm sure you've done other types of pairings or you just know if you take a, you know, a sip of whatever whiskey, take a bite of chocolate, it just works. Um, but that's the easiest way to go is, you know, some milk chocolate, dark chocolate, um, you know, caramel, whatever it may be. Mm. Um, you know, that's the easiest way to go. But actually I was just working with somebody this morning and they're going to do, uh, they sent me a menu And it was going to be um, kind of like a, uh, it was going to be like a big uh, gourmet hamburger. Uh, but they were going to start with like the, the, the thick cut bacon as well. So I'm working on like the pairing for that uh, just this morning. Um, so yeah, they, it kind of works with everything. But the easiest would be, the, would be if you're ever going to have kind of like some sort of charcuterie and cheeses and chocolates, grab a little bit of whiskey and kind of find what works as well so yeah it, it goes perfectly with haggis as well so yeah <laughs> it does 
<laughs> on Burns Night for sure in January for sure. Yeah. So. Great. Well, thank you so much for this. We've, we're having such a great time that we could go on for hours and hours. <laughs> we only have a limited amount of time, uh, shamefully. But thank you so much for this. Is there anything else you would like to share with the audience before we go? Uh, yeah. So again, you know, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for your time today. This has been great. Um, but yeah, if you're looking for Singapore Scotch, um, if you're trying to find something that's you know, kind of, you know, maybe a little different. Um, if you haven't heard of Benriac, Glendronic, or Glenglassa, um, you know, look for it. Benriac is sweet and smoky, and Glendronic is big, rich, powerful, dark fruits. And then Glenglassa, which I really didn't get into, is our small little niche distillery. It's right on the beach of the North Sea. So a lot of coastal influence, a lot of pineapples, tropical fruit notes, a very, very different. If you want a whiskey you've never had before, go to Glenglassa. I mean, they have some phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. So, um, yeah, I hope I hope uh, we uh, introduce some people to some some new whiskey brands if they haven't had it in the past, or if they have, then maybe they learned a little something about uh, the distilleries themselves. Yeah, we're gonna, I'll, I'll make sure to, to try for it. I, I'm going to look for it. If not, I'm going to call you so you can send some. <laughs> yes, yeah, <send> that works. <laughs> yeah, because as she said, we we have uh, a rough time really finding. Uh, different things like really not commercial things so uh or or maybe there are some brands that are not in the country so it's hard for mm -hmm. us to really look uh to to get these kind of bottles that sometimes you hear about it but yeah we can buy it there here sure sure well yeah we'll have to you know contact me if you're having problems finding it <laughs> <laughs> or you can tell us yeah exactly I, oh i think you can find it or or contact these guys so yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have teams all over. Brown so Foreman's got a big team. We have for the weekend, Alba. We can do that and, and then let Greg know what we think about it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. Great information. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. See you soon. Bye-bye. That's all for today. It was great to learn a bit more about this delicious Scottish drink, full of tradition and very related to the land and the people that produce it. If you like this episode, please leave us a comment on our social media. We are on Facebook as WeChatsMX and on Instagram as st.andrews.mx. If you have any questions or want to be a guest in the show, please let us know. Thank you for joining us today. We are your hosts, Tania Fuentes and Alba Sasueta. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Oh. And Slancheva. WeChats is produced by the Sinanjo Society of Mexico. Our staff also includes Tania Fuentes, Alba Sasueta, and Andres Castro. Our team song is The Soup of Good Drink, and this and the rest of the music is performed by Andres Castro and Brenda Speed. You can follow WeChats Facebook page and listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker. Anchor, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also get the entire archive in any podcast app. If you like the show, please recommend it to friends and family. That's the single best way to support the podcast that you love. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>